0: Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, professor of English and philosophy. The study of ontology boils down to asking the question, what is it like to be? This is a question that we revisit in various ways frequently throughout the show, but the first difficulty with this question lies in our subjective experience. All we know is our being, and if we're honest, We are too integrated into that paradigm to even reflect on it properly. The second difficulty arises from categorical overlap. When we ask, What is it like to be?, are we really asking an ontological or an epistemological question? After all, instead of asking, What it's like to be, we could just as easily ask, How do we know what it's like to be? If you're still with me and are wondering why it's pertinent, then I would ask you, what is it like to be sentient?
1: That's a really fine start
0: after we've been away for a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, so um, sentience, you and I were, um, we've done some research over the past week and we were talking about it a little bit before the show. It's going to be, I think this one's going to be really fun <laughs> and it's its going to be challenging yes. to say yeah. the least. So what is Sentience. Okay, so we
1: were we were talking about this downstairs before we started, weren't we? That sentience is not the same as some other concepts that it's often conflated with. So sometimes sen- sentience is conflated with consciousness. But we talked about consciousness, and probably all, always will, and, and that's a much more complicated seemingly mm-hmm. thing. Sentience seems less complicated, but I think it probably has the same degree of complexity, but it's not, not the same thing. So if we lower the bar, so to speak, sentience in philosophical terms uh, refers to things called qualia. Qualia are are feeling, Uh, feeling pleasure, feeling pain, feeling hurt, feeling, well, feel the senses. So sentient. Or sentience is more about whether or not we are aware of things that affect us, at the very least, physically. Then we can get into all the other stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think that probably a lot of yeah. listeners hear that um, description and they go, "Oh, wow, that's that's a lot more basic than what I thought it would mean." And I think that's because. Uh, you know linguistically like you were saying sentience is conflated with consciousness and probably even throughout the no- numerous episodes we've done we've we've yeah. sort of used it that way um sentio but, sentio as a, as a prefix sentio as it was a root means to feel <laughs> right <laughs> um, that's it <laughs> it's pretty basic and so and it even seems pretty cut and dry, right? But as we found out with philosophy over 102 episodes, um, the more basic or the more cut and dry something seems, usually the less so it actually is. Um, and as, as I said in the intro, a lot of times those difficulties stem from um, either categorical overlaps. So when you boil something down to such a point, um, you come to fundamental questions um, about well, where is this? Where is it stemming from? Are we? How are we saying that we know what this fundamental or foundational concept means? Yeah. And then you know the other primary difficulty is is language is language it, itself. It is it is very much language. There's a there's a an
1: old 1960s theory called the superior war theory, not war from Star Trek, way before that, and in linguistics. And it's the, the idea um, that that's very strong in linguistic field, that our language shapes our perceptions. And we've we've gone and out about language for uh, since we've started. Mm-hmm. And I think it very much is part of this. So, so feeling is not perception in the language of sentience. But I also think we have this popular culture and popularization of science that sometimes unintentionally misleads. So we'll have a Star Trek episode or heaven knows what, and, and some science officer or other will say, well, well we're seeking sentient life forms. Well, that means you're just thinking, finding things that, that feel right. (laughs) They don't necessarily think they don't. Yeah. uh, And you don't really expect that. You think, Oh, we're talking about
0: intelligence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, and this is, uh, man, this is going to be some really interesting stuff, but I don't want to, I don't (laughs) want to jump ahead. So, um, looking at the formative part of it, how did the concept of sentience arise in, in philosophy? (sighs) I think it goes right back to the old ones
1: <laughs> uh, to sound Lovecraftian. Uh, when when you have Aristotle saying things about animals uh, and and talking about men as anim- man as an as animal, man is a goal seeking animal. His life only has meaning. If he's reaching out and striving for his goals, but he also says things about basic things about uh, what animals do, how they hunt, uh, how we how we separate animals from justice. So it's more about animals, but the idea of sentience emerges when when Aristotle's talking about these kind of things when um, <clears throat> to the size of the state there is a limit, as there is to plants, animals, and implements, for none of these retain their facility when they are too large. So, he talks about the state, he talks about individuals, he talks about them in animal terms. Basically, it goes back to movement and motion, which the pre-Socratics were talking about. So, if the universe is not static, the universe is in motion. If things are in motion, things bump into each other. And then the question comes, do they hurt
0: when they bump each other? It's, it's not exactly how it was formed, but that's really what's going on. Yeah, I think that um, I think that is important. I think that the conversation about sentience in philosophy pro- I go. I think that it's probably accurate to say it goes back to when the first philosopher recognized that man is an animal, right? Not that man is some separate thing, right. but right. That when you realize man's an animal, right, that I think that that recognition in itself sort of removes that top level of consciousness or meta cognition yes. that, that does separate us yeah, from animals, course. as far as we know. As far right? as we know. And then we always have to say that. Of uh, uh. And that's an important part that we'll get it because that, like I said in the intro, that's where the ontological versus epistemological part of it comes in that we'll talk about in the speculative portion. But and I'm going to
1: add one more thing.
0: Yeah, uh, and that is that if you, when you're asking for,
1: you know, as we usually do the the formative, sorry, right, um, 1600s uh, philosophers, um, and I I I don't remember which philosopher, but in 1600s. Um, Take the term, uh, an ability to feel. They find the term, a Latin term, sentientem, sentientem, a feeling, to distinguish it from reason. So it didn't come into coinage until about oh, five hundred years ago.
0: Yeah, and, and during a very critical time in philosophy, because that was sort of at the height of, um. This turn from you know classical Greek um, rationalism in and into um, sort of the the Enlightenment philosophy, so that separation between reason and feeling, um, that's was breaking down a little bit, or was yeah, being crossed yeah. over, right, over. right. Yeah. And this is something that's still happening today, like we talked about in episode one hundred, right? Um, I think it was episode one hundred, might have been something before mm-hmm. that, but um. You know, we were talking about Platonic idealism and things, and then how, um, you know, Kant and Hume and these guys. It's like, well, were they talking about the same philosophical concepts as these guys, but just in a, you know, was it just a renewal? Yeah. No, there was something different about it. This is still happening today. um, You know, in the field of psychology that I'm studying, right? Um, You must encounter it all the time. Yeah, there's there's something going on in psychology now where um, it's It's modernism versus postmodernism, right? And so, modernism is um, science as everybody's familiar with it, right? Which is you start from a a neutral position and then you um, gather data and you attempt to analyze it as objectively as you can. And the conclusions that you draw are scientific, Mm -hmm. Um, which is (coughs) essentially rationalism, right? Um, Postmodernism is this idea that, well, because psychology, um, it's humans studying human brains, you cannot start from a neutral position, right? You're always going to have implicit biases or values. And those implicits or, um, implicital, you know, implicit values or um, ideals necessarily affect the way that you research things or how you do stuff or even the subjects that you're studying, their biases and things affect, affect it in such a point that there is no neutrality the feeling part of it is always there and it should be part of science so this is a battle that's going on right now right and it, it is and you know there's certain certain scientists on either side of it um and you know it's in my opinion watching it play out right i think that there's some value to postmodernism in a clinical setting right i think that it is important for A clinical psychologist to recognize their own biases, their own background, their own beliefs and values, and those of their client before they start um, utilizing scientific um, or, you know, theories or practices with that patient. But from a research um, standpoint, it becomes hard to um, say that. (laughs) these you know that you should start from anywhere but a neutral place even if it's not possible that you should try to do anything other than start from and end in a place of objectivity you know and
1: objectivity
0: and neutrality
1: uh, also are not entirely interchangeable we started off by saying that consciousness and sentience are not but there's a there's a very strong relationship between the two it's just sentience is sort of at the beginning well uh, objectivity is the attempt to see things outside of what might lead you to confirmation bias neutrality is more of a political kind of term or or has become so where we'll all, we'll all agree to just stay at this particular uh, we won't argue about this that or the other thing with this um and it is hard. I was talking to I had this, the great joy of having a, a class this week. It really wasn't a class. It was just a. I was giving a workshop voluntarily, well, subversively, <laughs> to a group group of grad students who wanted help with the APA citation format, and and that was in my wheelhouse for a long time, and still is. So I. We were talking but one of the questions that they wondered was the classic question i always got in writing classes which is can can i use the word i Uh, and and my response is well apa science social sciences harder sciences are sort of going toward that in ways that they didn't 20 30 years ago but one always asks the question but why do you want to use the word i and well, how do I say something that doesn't have the word I in it? All right, let's make a disc- uh I feel pain when my hand is close to fire. All right. We feel pain when our hand is close to fire. That backs it away from I. More uh, objective, humans feel pain when their hands are close to fire. If that's too much, fire proximity to fire creates pain. We say it all kinds of different ways but we cannot eliminate and we know it the high and that's
0: what you were talking about yeah and and this this does have something to do with what we're talking about i think that yeah, that progression that you just presented um is the progression from an ontological to an epistemological mm. question right mm. from what is it what is it like <clears throat> to be to well how do we know what it's like to be if we say proximity to fire causes pain to what right because yeah. there are some animals that Proximity to fire might not cause them pain if you live in a thermal vent that's hundred degrees <laughs> yeah. so so all right, so getting getting back on track, right? I guess the next question would be how have philosophers distinguished between sentience and consciousness and other aspects of the mind? Um, Go ahead, you, yeah, you so to- I you know we've we sort of set the set the tone here with looking at how how sentience. Arose in philosophical discussion. Mm-hmm. So, how did they set about w- w- consciousness, right? Sentience, other other ways that that humans or or other beings think. Where where are they drawing that distinction? Well, we we, we start. Well, we have to start somewhere. So let's let's
1: start with Descartes. Back to, I, I think. Therefore, I I am. Well, packed into all of that is you know we got the mind body duality is the mind separate from the body? Is the mind feeling pain? (laughs) That that all emerges out of that. It's not necessarily what was intended, but in the, but I think it was when you, when you read the material, it's not just mind and body, end of story. And And I think that's, again, in the time period you're talking, we were mentioning, that's where this question's really coming up. How does this Meat machine function. They weren't calling it that back then. How does this organic con- construct um, function? Is it is there a ghost in the machine that makes it happen, and so on? So, what's really feeling? Is it the nerve endings? If we get, to, if we we fast forward to um, any number of current philosophers uh, who talk about us being nothing but, and we've talked about this before. That we're just organic, and that's it. And we have the impression of of having a a personality and a consciousness, but that's all generated by the organic need for the for the machine to continue. I don't. I've never found myself able to completely accept that. Uh, I understand the argument, but um, something's missing there. But in any case, so we we go from the idea of duality to the uh, attempt, again, to put everything into a mono term. And so we, we get to Thomas Nagel, and he's the one who asked the question about, as, as you know, what is it like to be a bat? Yeah. Right? It's one of his anchoring works. And out of all of that come investigations on whether what comes first, the, the feeling or <laughs> or the perception of a feeling and that's where we go from sentience to consciousness um, and you know and, and I'm not trying to stray us all over the place but I think somewhere in this scaffolding that we're doing that leads to the idea of if someone for instance is under anesthesia and the body is rendered immobile but the anesthesia, uh, as to some extent worn off so the person is immobile but still feels the surgery is there pain yes and this has been documented this is, has happened Do do outside observers register the pain not necessarily
0: yeah and this is where the concept of sentience gets really difficult because yes like you're saying um everything all of classical philosophy was this rationalism trying to to discover um what the interaction between the mind and body was and you had um you know all the way up from you know Descartes to to Kant to Hume to Spinoza um and and, yes you know people with with skepticism and you know it was basically this fight right between skepticism Um, And and mono views of things versus a a dualistic and and sort of um, esoteric kind of Yes, the
1: the esoteric part is uh, is in part things like we can never understand the qualia. We don't know what it's like for you to—I don't know what it's like for you to feel something because I'm not you.
0: That's one of the uh, positions. The current philosophy yeah. takes, and qualia. I mean, this is this is sort of the word around which the uh, this concept of sentience revolves, right? Because, all right, so we, we talk about qualia and sentience in terms of sensation or feeling, but where where do you draw the line on what is qualia? Is it is it a sense of touch and 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 sight and or hearing? Um. But then as we work our way up to, to thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Or you and I talking right now, right? So your voice hitting my ears is is a sensation. But how my brain is using those random sounds to construct meaning out of them, you know, is that is that qualia? Is Is that just a sensation? Is that just a feeling? Or is there something else going on? And that's where the line between sentience and consciousness is yes. drawn. Um, and I think that if we're, if we're just looking at it from a human paradigm, it seems pretty simple, right? Like, so we know, um, if I, if we look at like a, um, uh, you know, um, the word escapes me, but a cognitive processing psychological paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. Basically the first several, um, milliseconds of my conscious experience is sensation. So um, light hitting my eyes, sound waves hitting my ears. Yes. Then there's an integration period where my brain is swapping all the signals around, making sense of them. And then um, there's a short-term memory thing where I'm working with it, and then there's a long-term memory thing where I'm encoding it. Right? Hmm. That's all. That's all fine and dandy, right? So there's there's a line we know. Okay. So sensation is that initial thing, and then and then we know, you know how it works, right? Sort of. Where it gets difficult though is if you start. Like I said in the intro, we only know our being, and this is what you're talking about as well. Yes. We only know what it's like to be humans. And so it's been pretty um, easy in the past being humans and looking at things from a human paradigm to examine the animal kingdom and say, okay, well, none of these, these things um, might be sentient, but none of these things are conscious because the processing isn't going on. The way it is in a human mind. And that's the qualifier, the qualia, right? Right, right? But the more we start to learn about these things, what's it like to be a bat or an article I sent you earlier in the week? Huh? You know, what's it like? You know, bees, bees right? right? Octopus, whales. And the more we start to learn about these things and see the way that they process information and the actions that they take off of it. Um, that's when drawing the line between sentience and consciousness suddenly gets very fuzzy. <laughs> it, 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 yes, or or
1: slicky or oily or whatever, <laughs> depending on the, you know, the, the creature. It, it does, and it's fascinating because even when we think we know, I'm listening to you describe the process well, and, and you're bringing up all the points and the questions therefrom, I still don't know what it's like Think let's think about what, what we have been coming to know about the wide range. No one likes to use the phrase on the spectrum now. Like, mm. okay. Well, if there is a spectrum for humanity and for qualia, then we're all on the spectrum somewhere. Or, or our, our process of bringing them in is. But there are people for whom this level of volume would hurt their ears or there are people for if the light is too bright it would shatter or dominate their consciousness and there was a time when people would would uh, seem to always people try to take the simple route and to say well you're you're not normal or normal people can handle bright light what's wrong with you or you know just get used to it because that's what you have to do and not helpful things, right? <laughs> but when we realize, uh, we have the capacity to realize that light can hurt some people, just as one example. Uh, this is why I take issue with, uh, and I don't begin to understand everything that Daniel Dennett writes, and he's a brilliant writer, and I, I, I find him fascinating to read. But he essentially says we should just toss qualia out the window because he's really meaningless. And I can never operate on the notion that that our perception of of what what it feels like to be something that this is the basis of poetry, <laughs> this is the basis of so much art. I, I think if we throw that out, we throw out some of our humanity. And I think D- Danet is
0: trying to help tell us that that humanity is about being the machine. Hmm. Yeah, and so this is getting at this this um idea of what are the minimum qualifications for sentience, right? And there's sort of two paradigms. There's phenomenal and effective consciousness is, yeah. is what they, and again, here we go with the word consciousness and <laughs> sentience being conflated. But, you know, phenomenal consciousness is um, what I think what Dennett is talking about, yes. which is just, okay, That that initial simple definition that we gave at the beginning of the episode, can you sense things? That's phenomenal consciousness or sentience, right? Effective consciousness or sentience goes a bit beyond that, right? So what are so what what are the minimum minimum qualifications needed for sentience that have been kind of established through well through philosophy and science where they sort of
1: intersect is you, you have to have some kind of um, neural framework, neural structure. Even if it's not a central nervous system that we amazing anthropomorphs, <laughs> humanoids, humans have, we, we sapiens, we, how grand we are. We, but, but we all have, ner- anybody, anything that is going to be sentient will have a neural structure because otherwise the
0: qualia couldn't take place. Right. So that's really the basic. And so physically. again, um, just like with Qualia, this idea of feeling gets kind of complicated. Or central nervous system, right? Um, <laughs> yes. You know, we. So I know that when we talk about central nervous systems, we're appealing to a, a scientific or empirical idea of neurons and dendrites and and you know glial cells and these sorts of things. Um, but. Let me give you an example, right? So, there is a type of snail that uses two neurons that that's it all uses. And it just determines if it's hungry or if it's not. Mm-hmm. And so, one, you know, and on, on this little light bright, there's just two lights. One light lights up, it starts eating stuff. The other light, it goes out, it doesn't eat okay. stuff, right? Yeah. Let's contrast that with... um some uh this white fungus right that's that lives in forests and it connects trees underground and Mm -hmm. other types Mm -hmm. of fungus and other types of plants and it essentially ferries nutrients throughout the forest um it acts as a a chemical messenger i was just about to say chemical messenger yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. and so um and what they found is that this this is very sophisticated and Mm then the trees themselves will communicate through this fungus. They'll share nutrients. So if a tree is is struggling, um, it might ask for nutrients from other trees in order to help it. Um, if the tree knows it's beyond repair, it's going to die, it will give its nutrients back to other trees. Parent trees have been shown to have favoritism towards their trees that are <laughs> that they have, yes. you know... Or family of theirs <laughs> seems a lot more complex than am I going to eat something or am I not going to eat something, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, does does is this a central nervous system? Well, not if you're thinking about dendrites and neurons and glial no, cells, no, no. Um, but the processing, the processing that's happening, um, and and again feeling right this is our this is sort of our key term here feeling right surely the snail with its two neurons knows what it's like to feel um hunger and fullness um but apparently the snail does not know how to feel um empathy towards its offspring or if a community around it needs assistance or if it's close to the end of its existence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this becomes really complicated in saying, well, sentience is um, sensation and feeling. Well, but it's sensation and feeling with a central nervous system. That's a big qualifier. That is a a very big qualifier. And a a neural
1: structure is what we're talking about with that very simple neural structure of of the snail. But again, where, you're, where this goes is giving more um, gravitas and um, complexity to the word feeling. Mm. And if we pare that away, and I'm not saying I, I want the gravitas for the word feeling, but if we pare it away, it feels hungry or it doesn't. That's That's the feel. Mm. What does it feel like to be hungry? <laughs> that's a lot harder to describe, even for something with a, a central nervous system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it. What, what do you say when you I'm hungry? How do you know? My stomach's growling. Yes, and what else? I, I feel hangry. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means so I'm, I'm feeling kind of itchy and, and, and growly because I don't have enough calories. So that's what it feels like not to have enough calories. Is there pain involved? Well, does it hurt to be hungry? Well, yes. If you're going, there are too many people on this planet know that. Um, But when we just say I'm hungry,
0: we all think we know what we mean. But we don't. And that's that's what you were saying with qualia, right? Is that my idea of what it means to be hungry is going to be wildly different than somebody in a third world country or what it means for me to be tired or for it to be bright in here, for it to be loud in here. And they've demonstrated this that, um, people with red hair are, they feel pain more significantly than other people. Hmm. Um, so we, we know this, right? There's highly sensitive people. There's, so just within the human race, within the human species, there's a wide variance in how qualia is perceived. Yes. And you get into other aspects, right? I, I have no sense of smell. There is no, qualia for me with that sense. Um, as a matter of fact, we were hanging out with some of our friends last weekend and um, at a, we were at a restaurant eating breakfast and um, there's this red squeeze bottle on the table, right? So I squeeze some of this on my home fries and I, eat it. I go, man, you guys have to try this sauce. It's amazing. And they're like, well, what is it? I'm like, I don't know. It's really sweet. I've never tasted anything like it. My other friend uh, squeezed some on his plate, eats it, he goes, this is ketchup. <laughs> and I go, no, it's not. It's, it's it, This is different from ketchup. And they ask the server, and she goes, oh, yeah, that's ketchup. right?" <laughs> and so everybody has a good laugh at me, right? But that's the thing is without a sense of smell, mm-hmm. the individual components that make up ketchup, um, a, a lot of them disappear. And okay. so even though I've had ketchup before, if the ingredients that go into, if this, Particular ketchup brand used more sugar than another type. Yep. That sugar overpowers any of the nuanced things, especially with no sense of smell. And suddenly, it's this strange sugary substance that I can't identify because because you don't the have the tomato extra... the salt. You know the the salty or the uh, you know the other parts of what make it taste different have been overwhelmed by the taste buds without the olfactory input. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that you know obviously this is smell is if you're going to lose a sense, that's the one you want to lose is, is, and, and, and and
1: because of COVID, I still have occasional, it's not, it's not nearly as, as uh, in and out as it was uh, close to the event, but uh, there'll be days when I can smell and days when I can't. And I never know waking up until I, how do you know that you can't smell? Well, you start trying to smell. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, you sniff, and nothing comes in. But you see, we try to put words around this, <laughs> as simple as that is. You know, or you walk with somebody, or my, my granddaughter will say to me, "Grandpa, can you smell today?" Well, yes, I actually can. Then she'll stick a flower to my nose. So, I'll, but it's a flower that doesn't have a scent. But she says that flower smells. Oh, that smells so good. And she's making it up, I think. But I don't know. Because right. yeah. <laughs> because she may have this acute awareness of some scent that I'm not getting. So I, I know that's a goofy little example, but I but I think it's actually pretty serious. We just make assumptions.
0: Yeah. There's the huge viral thing a few years ago about the dress that was is it blue and black or is it white and gold? Right. Yeah. Two completely opposite colors, right? And, but the population was pretty much split on yep. what color this dress was. And that, I think that that shook a lot of people's worlds, right? To realize that, um, you know, two, you know, half the population could look at this thing and see something that was almost completely the opposite of what the other half was seeing. And that raises the question, what is the difference between a sensation and a feeling? We've talked about sentience as being the, the ability to sense and the ability to feel. Is there a difference between a sensation and a feeling? Uh, (laughs) Wow. In the
1: nature of the words and what they imply or what what accrues to them like barnacles on a ship, yes, a a sensation is more scientifically viable as a term. I, I have a sensation of hot or cold, of sharp or dull. Okay. I feel something that is sharp or cold, but the word "if I feel this," I am um, putting an intermediary object in. Whereas I sense, there may not be anything there, but I feel. I sense the uh, the touch or something—a like breeze
0: that moves across your skin. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the example of the snail and, and the fungus is a, is a good, is a good example, right? Because it seems like sensation is to feeling as sentience is to consciousness in a way where the snail no has a feeling of hunger and a feeling of satiation. Um, that goes along with a sensation most likely of eating or of not eating the fungus it seems has sensation it can sense when a tree is sending it's a signal that Mm -hmm. it needs nutrients Mm -hmm. or that another you know to do something but does the fungus have a feeling of what it's of you know of the need thus far we don't know and that's an interesting can it, it can sense need but can it feel need, and that i think that's where the difference is is that and i think the feeling the interesting thing about feeling is what you just alluded to in in your description which is that feeling can be misleading right one of my favorite um scientific experiments is when they um they cover a subject's arm with a you know to hide it and then they put a fake arm in front of them that you can't see where it's connected and then they um touch both hands with a feather in the same exact way and they 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 trick the brain into thinking that the fake arm is a real arm mm. and then you know you can stab it and then the subject will feel pain in their real arm so they're not sensing pain because the real arm is not being affected but they are it. feeling they're, it. they're feeling pain. it as as a kind of an anticipatory i
1: i I've, I've known some old guys older much than I who they want their nails trimmed or they want their eyebrows trimmed and you go to trim the eyebrows and they'll say ouch <laughs> before they the, right. <laughs> right okay so um and, and you might say come on grow up or whatever but but they're anticipating something but we we don't know we we, we have this anthropomorphic. Uh, Chip on our shoulder so that, so that, you know, we'll, we'll get all, I'm, I'm going go to go into. to, I'm going to cross the spectrum really fast here. <laughs> we'll get all high and mighty and moralistic when we, uh, talk about abortion. And, uh, people say, well, a fetus can feel. Look, it's, it's it it can respond at a certain point. All right, yes. But don't get all moralistic on me about that. When we allow ourselves to not feel, or to go ahead and and kill other things with a bandit, we all. I mean, this is where it gets really philosophical. How I'm going to cross the spectrum? We kill things every day by action or by inaction our very presence in the world kills things our very contribution to the environment kills things of the environment we kill trees we take weeds down we we smush insects and so on and so on often when we don't need to and and so sentience if we think of just sentience as the capacity for things to feel sensation and we like, we say, no, 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 it's wrong to do something to, to a, a creature if it can have a sensation. But we do it all the time to feed ourselves because we say we can't feed ourselves other way. But even if we do, we do it to plants, which can have a yeah, you know, sensation. Is. And so we, we kill things all the time.
0: Yeah, we're fully into it now. And um and we've talked about this. It's been a while, so I think it's it's good, but this is something that has popped up in in other episodes and you've outlined it perfectly, which is so we've been setting the stage all episode for this conversation, right? <laughs> which is um like you said, if you, and if you start reading about sentience, you'll see that a lot of the philosophers do start making these Uh, moral statements which are um things like and these are um you know intellectuals professional philosophers saying things like if something has sensation or the ability to feel then it it deserves the right to live a free a life free of pain but as we've seen modern science is really starting to make it very difficult to live by that credo because It, it is like we talked about the fungus, um, same thing with that. If you start cutting down the tree, they found that the tree, quote unquote, screams. They mm-hmm. can sense the pulsations through the fungus that the tree is sending out a distress signal. If that's not sensation or, or feeling. Or what is. Right. And, you know, same thing with plants. Um, I, I had a particularly disturbed, but one of my friends, um, he grew up on a farm, right? Um, and he was talking about, um, you know, harvesting animals. And he made just the offhanded comment, right that oh, pigs are the worst because pigs scream. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying. It's really that that it, made me it, it is It made me think, oh man, I don't you know yeah. do you want to it's, oh, I don't want to think about that. I just want to eat my bacon. okay, but and again, it's it's language, right? Yes. using the word scream um versus you know a, a vocalization, right? When you think about the oh well, the tree, Sends out a distress signal versus the pig screams, right? If you swap those, right, the tree screams or the pig sends out a distress signal, the language plays a big part in how we view those events. Back to the sub- of the uh,
1: superior warp hypothesis, and back to what you said about neutrality and objectivity. And that takes us into euphemism. Oh, it's much better. To, it's, it's much more distant and objective to say it sends out a distress signal. So do I, when I stub my toe, it's not one I want anybody else to hear. <laughs> distress <laughs> signal. Uh, but an old, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, we were talking yesterday about this podcast that I was going to do and said, I, many creatures are sentient, just not to our knowledge and observation. Uh, she believes, and I and I, I concur. Sentience lies under non-human rights groups um, and others trying to establish through courts to the habeas corpus for standing for individual creatures, elephants, apes, and so on. Um, or in that in, in the, I was listening to a, a panel discussion from the London School of Philosophy and Economics that happened this this past June and toward the end they were taking fielding questions and one of the questions was do you think that laws need to be established for dealing with wild animals and they said absolutely because our laws right now are for wild animals that are under domestic control in zoos and so on but if you believe well it's out in the wild so we can just kill it well why because it's sportsmanlike okay so it's it's the need to go out and kill whether you need to go out and kill <laughs> is sportsmanlike. Well, I have a right to kill animals. What gives you that right? And then people some people go to sacred text and you know and but it gets it all comes back to
0: nobody thinking about what it feels.
1: Yeah, what there's does it
0: feel like. There's an interesting documented case of um a Russian trophy hunter who um, went to hunt a tiger. His name escapes me. It's Vladimir something. <laughs> I want to say it's Mosikov or something. Anyways, he goes to hunt a tiger. He finds a tiger. He shoots it and wounds it. The tiger escapes. Um, before he returns back to his hut, the tiger returns to his hut. The tiger tears apart everything that has his scent. Then lies in wait and when he returns, kills him. And the tiger waited, they know it was between 12 and 48 hours for him to return. That sure seems like sentient. I mean, if you look it, at it, right, you think about what well, the, hu- what the, what the it, humans set out to do, yeah. and then what the tiger set out to do, they don't seem all that different, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, I suppose
1: that's why the movie recently, Beast, I, I didn't watch it, it an interstellable movie Lion that seems to be stalking people. But it's a beast. So obviously it's the monster because humans have to, <laughs> the anthropomorphic thing again. But we're, but we're back to it. Do the, where the ethical philosophy comes in is do we, uh, well, first, it's the scientific, uh, the, the basic philosophy is does something have sensation? Can it feel pain, pleasure, hurt, whatever? extremes and if it can do we have any
0: any ethical responsibility toward that creature you wonder what makes that question very difficult for me is the time and developmental portion of it right you brought up abortion right oh look the fetus can feel well can the fetus feel or sense before a certain point exactly or and- with animals or or you know even okay we let's say we know trees can feel right oh this tree can feel but if i just go under the tree and, and harvest the nuts or the the fruit the fall off of it need it those can those things feel no probably not um you know I, so there's <laughs> that that makes it difficult right so there's this idea of Well, what is the thing now versus the thing's potential, right? And so when you're looking at an abortion argument or an argument for any of these different things, um, there's time, this mysterious thing that we all experience, we all live in, uh, but can't quite put our finger on. Mm -hmm. um, There's a potential, right? There's a potential for this fetus to grow into a human. There's a potential for this nut to grow into a tree. How does that change the ethical or moral arguments that we make against, you know. That's marvelously said. Because ultimately, if we say we have a right to
1: take, to, we have a right to make decisions about our bodies. Something is within our bodies. That's the right that has been taken away in the country. And some people say, yay. And, so, and a lot of people are saying, nope, hands off. Nobody's saying this isn't. A deep decision. Nobody's saying that this isn't a decision that has, uh, that the people, some people are saying people we'll just do this offhand and they just go ahead and do it. Nah, I've not encountered them. I volunteered for places. Mm. Um, no, I, that, that's, that's just a misleading thing. So that, that's, that's, but even if we move away from that. Your thing, your your example is beautiful because it does encompass time and space and the potential of something, and so that takes us to something like uh, when 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 people when human beings are dehumanized by organizations in order to make it easier to kill them or move
0: them or hurt them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, sticking with the abortion example, right? If you bring the time element into it and keep the moral element to it then you can't just look at the moment of, of ending the life. You have to extrapolate beyond that. Well, if we have a moral obligation to stop this life from ending, then shouldn't we have a moral obligation to make sure that this life is, what have the philosophers said, free of pain, right, free of right. threat, <laughs> these sorts of things? Yes. That, we make no assurances after that. Once, once you're born, um. This is America, where you make yourself, and you you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Which right, was an right. ironic statement to begin <laughs> with. <laughs> Just point that out. That that was Thank never you. meant to be. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's never meant to be a statement that.
1: <laughs> no, no, it was. It was not. And you and you were you're spot spot on right uh, about this because this is this is what leads people to a different level of feeling and belief and, and everything else because it's the complication is what do you have the right to do and what gives you that right? And, and then we're back to politics and we're back to the relationship with the individual and the state all because of qualia. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, the, this conversation is so um, complex and we're not even going to come close to having answers here. So I might as well just introduce more questions. Go, right? go. We'd be remiss in this conversation if we didn't bring up um, artificial intelligence, right? Yes, yes. Um, and so I, this I thought was very fascinating in doing research for the show is um, there is artificial – I think there, the way it was put was the artificial intelligence community – um, you know, pretty much as a whole, outright rejects the idea that, um, a computer system could ever be sentient. Yes. And that <laughs> largely rests on the argument that we mentioned earlier, which, um, states that sentience must come from a central nervous system, a neural network. Neural network, though, is the way that they describe how an AI system develops. So do you think, Um, that AI researchers are falling into the same language trap, the same self-protective mental trap that an animal farmer does, right? In the way that they describe, you know, butchering a cow or a pig or a sheep or a chicken, right? This idea of, do you think it's a self-protective thing or do do we trust that the argument that sentience can only be established through Inorganic central nervous system neural network. Do we accept that that's a good argument? I I can't accept that that's a good argument,
1: precisely because what you just described it becomes a self-referential anthropomorphic paradigm. If it's a neural network, well, whether you take neural network and you put them together you have made something or are working on making something because it's coy not to say it's coy to say we're not working on trying to make a mind of course we're working on trying to make that's why it's artificial intelligence but the artificial it suggests artifice which suggests made and yet some of the very same people who are scientists and who are also christians argue that we're created well now we're creating something all right, so it's made, it's constructed, it is artifice. Anything that has been made is artifice, whether if you concentrate on the word art or not. It's and, and so for us to say, again, I'll reference my friend, after millions of years of evolution, if we've come to the place now where... What's <laughs> Wow. Look at our accomplishment. We're breaking the planet. We can't feed enough people across the planet. We are cruel and unjust within our own country, not a, let alone the rest of the planet. And, and we can create an intelligence and we think we can create an intelligence that is more objective. Is that the goal? I don't, I've not seen that. I've not read that for artificial intelligence. We're creating an intelligence that we would recognize and therefore is like ours and therefore is going to have our flaws. Mm.
0: Yeah. The way that most of these artificial intelligence are created is by feeding them massive volumes of human created works, whether that is painting or music or literature or, you know, that that's the way that they learn. And so, you know, this idea, yeah, this, you know, and, And we don't have the singularity hasn't, that we know of, (laughs) happened
1: yet. We don't have the kind of artificial intelligence of a commander data in Star Trek or pick your science fiction. But we're aiming to that. Mm -hmm. At the same time that we seem to be still caught in the idea that everything must serve us. So, in essence, we create things to make them serve us which is a very ugly and disturbing <laughs> um track record yeah yeah uh, so i i think that if a if a machine says that it feels if we get to the point that there was one of the uh, one of the things i think you and i both read but i i, I was reading it a few days ago Uh if if a, a person is working with artificial intelligence design, and is sitting across from a created figure, and the figure frowns, if the android figure frowns, and says, "I I'm not sure that I want to continue doing this experiment," uh, it troubles me. Do we say, well, because of all the things that have been input into that, it's found the response that it wants to give to us? How is that different than us? Because of all the different, (laughs) (laughs) all the the things we reach out to to prepare a podcast, we read, we dive in, we we randomly find things and and we share them, and because of what we've read and because of what we've experienced, then we we give input, output. <laughs> we respond and we adjust.
0: That's what we're talking about—artificial intelligence doing. Right, right. And so I think that the linchpin of of the argument that I think that most of the AI researchers reject is again the same thing with the mushroom, right? Is this where do you separate the line between feeling and between sensation, right? Yes. I think that it's undeniable, right, that these that um, even the most basic, um, computer systems might have sensation, right? You, you have cameras on things, right? I've, I have a security camera right on my house. It's sensing light. Um, what's it doing with that? Not much, you know, it's, right. <laughs> that's, that's, it's review, but that's sensation. But would it feeling, send out a distress signal if you broke the lens? Um, it would let me know. Yeah. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Thomas Nagel would be saying, this is crap. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Because he, you know, Nagel said there is nothing it is like for a thing to be a thing. It is an inanimate object. But artificial consciousness isn't an object. It might be enclosed within an object. And then we're
0: back to mind, body, Dualism, again. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is, um, you know, obviously you, there's things about, um, AI that you and I don't know. I've talked to actual AI researchers and stuff, and, um, they've laid out how it works and, and, you know, how things go. And, but that's the thing, right? Is there's, there is this, it, I don't think it's hubris, right? I don't think that it's this, um, willing, um, downplaying of, of the technology. But I do think it's it's kind of a a blind spot or a bias, right? To say, oh well, we can unplug it at any time and, and it stops. Well, you could unplug us at any time and we would stop. Like yeah, just like but, you said, right? The, the process the of how it's doing things, right? And you get the language, and obviously there was that big thing earlier about the the Google worker talking to yes. Lambda. And it would do the very things that you were talking about. It would express its its fears, right, to this guy. And well, is it just finding inputs, you know, searching throughout its whole um, information, um, everything that it knows and searching for fears and what people have said and picking the best options or maybe the ones that are most applicable to the conversation that it was having with the researcher? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's probably a good chance that's what it's doing. But how is that different from what we're doing? right um and i think that that's it's that feeling and sensation right does does the computer feel fear or does it just sense what people have said about fear and then turn it around and, and i what, think that that's the difference right, right and what's the difference yeah it's an important question about what what if a
1: child says to us i'm really afraid And and the standard adult response, I I don't. I think we try not to default to the standard, but often the standard is, "Oh, you don't have to be afraid. This is this is perfectly fine." Or 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 somebody says to a kid who's going to get a shot, "This isn't going to hurt." Baloney, it does. Some will be honest and say it's going to feel like a pinch. Well, that's closer. But does a shot feel like a pinch? Maybe to some people it does. Does a shot feel like a does the shot feel like a break? Does the shot feel like a spear? <laughs> not to everybody. Right. How do we know if the machine, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to be glib about this. I think that we, I think we don't think about
0: it necessarily enough. And this comes back to the intro question. Are we asking, does the thing feel or how do we know if the thing mm. feels? And that's And how, how do we answer that? Like, how do we justify that answer saying, how, how do we know if the thing feels or how do we know what it's like to be the thing? Or we acknowledge that we sometimes go ahead and do things anyway, because
1: after all, our space is our space. I I could be, I could be held accountable for a horror of devastation earlier this week when a a horde of stink bugs (laughs) got inside one of the rooms in my house. And I went bloody Schwarzenegger on. <laughs> I just was. I was appalled. I was <laughs> get these things, get them out as fast as possible. And what you do is you, you kill them, yeah, I, or else you try to gather them up and throw them back outside. And and sometimes you do some of both. Oh, was I better? Was I a more moral person because I put that stink bug out? But this one I just crushed. Yeah. We're complicit.
0: We kill things, right? Yeah, and I, I had an interesting experience with that earlier in the week, right? If I see a spider around the house, normally I'm I'm crushing it, right? But we had this tiny little spider that... Dished, he made a little web um, on the, the bathroom sink, kind of near the toothbrushes. And um, every night I brush my teeth. I just look at him and he's just sitting there. And um, I just, just let him hang out. I'm not exactly sure why, but he stayed in that same spot for probably two weeks. And one day I noticed he was gone. And uh, the first thing I did was check my toothbrush bristles. (laughs) (laughs) But then, um, you know, later that day, I was taking a shower and I see this tiny little spider crawling in the shower. Yeah. And I went to crush it. And then I went, I wonder if this is the same one that was by the sink. And I let him go. Right. (laughs) How anthropic is that? Just this idea. And how does that change your perspective on things? When... You have this exposure over and over again. And again, you start to, you're you're anthropomorphizing. You're creating a story. We've talked about stories Mm -hmm. and the power of stories, Mm -hmm. right? And you're ascribing characteristics to things. And that's another big part of this conversation, right? How much of, when we're talking about feeling and we're talking about sensation, how much of it is things that these other objects are expressing to us? And how much of it is things that we are inventing or that we're looking into about or, our own actions
1: and looking into our own actions by creating that story yeah um, I, I i we
0: do that yeah that's yeah, true so again we're not getting we didn't get near any answers but when i think you know when we're talking about ai um at least for me i'm not i'm not attempting to swing people one way or the no, other like i have no i have just i'm just as confused as as everybody else is and I'm just trying to look at all the sides of the different arguments. Same thing with the spider, right? Is is it right to crush the spider or is it right to let him go? I don't know, but I do know that tiny jumping spiders have REM sleep. They just discovered that. So these little spiders dream, right? <laughs> so they have sensations. They probably have feeling. You know, they know in their in their little dreams, they know what it feels like to jump on prey. They can tell by the way that they move their legs and their mandibles and things. So Again, there's no, what conclusions do we draw from this? Uh, It's very difficult. It's something we wrestle with. And we talked about it before the show. We said, this is going to be one of the most difficult topics that we've looked at because when we talk about consciousness, it becomes easier to draw some of these distinctions. But sentience is much more basic. And like I said in the intro, or maybe shortly after the intro, the more basic or the more foundational something is, and the more critically you look at that thing, the more you have to start asking yourself, well, how do I know that this thing means what I think it means? Which is a, a language problem. It's an epistemology problem. It's an ontological, it's an ontological problem. problem. Androids uh, and dream of electric sheep. Right. Okay,
1: yeah. Dick. That's marvelous. You know, I was just thinking of that with you. <laughs> we don't. We even have trouble describing what our own dreams
0: yeah. are. Yeah. So- so man yeah this was this was fun and i'm sure we'll explore other topics like in the future but until next time